The sermon text this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, as we are in a new series uh, through the letter of Philippians. Verses 1 through 2 uh, read, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are in a new series through Philippians, and you know, I am so excited about studying this book of the Bible together for the next several weeks. And I would say I would be excited about any of the 66 books, uh, really. Uh, but you know, Philippians, it is a fairly short book in the Bible. It only has four chapters. But as we'll see in our study, uh, each chapter is packed with doctrine and with practical application for the Christian life. Um, We learn about God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ, but, you know, we also learn in Philippians, as we'll see, how to live as Christians in this age. And the letter to Philippians, to the Philippians, is also one of uh, the epistles in, in the scriptures, one of the letters of Paul, that has many memorable passages, passages that some of us have no doubt memorized at some point or another. So I want to ask you, you know, do any of these sound familiar to you? Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's another memorable number of verses, chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. How about this one? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Chapter 2, verse 13. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Isn't that such a memorable set of verses? Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And perhaps the most well-known verse in the letter, chapter 4, verse 13, let's see if you can finish it. Uh, I can do all things. Yeah, it's a very memorable verse, right? Uh, These memorable verses are all throughout the letter of Philippians. And so, you know, as we read this letter, we will get a sense of Paul's pastoral heart that he wrote with. He wrote this letter to a church, to people that he knew and people that he loved. They were saints in Christ Jesus. And because Paul loved the Lord Jesus, he also loved the church of the Lord Jesus. This church in Philippi began, as we read 
during um, our second reading from Acts chapter 16. It began when the Apostle Paul was called by a man in a vision to Macedonia. And when he arrived in Philippi, which was a leading city in Macedonia, after a few days, Paul and some others began to share the gospel with some of the women in Philippi. And we read that one of those women was named Lydia. We read in Acts 16 that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to all that was said by Paul. Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, is explaining to us that God sovereignly opened Lydia's heart and granted her uh, understanding. This is the effectual call. And we read that she and her household, her family, were then baptized. But we also read in Acts 16 that Lydia and her household were not the only Christian converts in Philippi. Because Acts 16 continues and teaches us that a jailer came to faith. And as we read chapter 16, wasn't it such a miraculous and a dramatic conversion that this jailer experienced? And then he and his whole family uh, were baptized. And so when Paul and his companions uh, finally left Philippi to continue on their missionary journeys... You know, what they left behind was a small, new church. It was a thriving church. And so, as he now wrote this letter to them a while later, he was writing to people that he knew, people that he loved. And his pastoral heart really comes across in this letter. And so when we think about all of these uh, memorable and, and wonderful verses that we noted from the letter, You know, you might think that Paul was writing this from some comfortable home, uh, that it might have been an easy, a very comfortable season in Paul's life because this letter has such a confident and and joyful tone about it. But, you know, in reality, he wrote this letter from prison. Not only from prison, but he wrote as he was awaiting uh, a judgment, a judgment that might have surely ended in his execution. Uh, And the judgment was because he was uh, preaching the gospel. And so right from the start of the letter, despite the difficult circumstances he finds himself in, you know, not sure if he's going to live or die, not sure when the end will come, despite these Uh, Difficult circumstances, we see that Paul writes here with a deep love for Christ and a deep love for Christ's church. And he begins the letter, as we see in verse 1, which is our first point this morning. He begins by saying, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. We read from Acts 16 about who Timothy was and how Paul came to know him. Uh, Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, and his father was a Greek. So Timothy became Paul's, uh, you might say, his protege, uh, his disciple, and he accompanied him on some of his missionary journeys. And so as we consider the opening of of this letter, the opening phrase, one of the things that is surprising is that Paul identifies himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. Servants of Christ Jesus. Now, you know, the Greek word for servants 
that Paul uses here actually referred to uh, first century slaves. Uh, Paul is identifying himself at the beginning of this letter as a slave of Christ Jesus. And, you know, what is he getting at by identifying himself and Timothy in this way? You know, slaves in the ancient world, they had various positions within a household. Some worked in the fields. Others had jobs that we today would characterize as white-collar jobs. But, you know, there was one universal truth about slavery in the ancient world, that the slave was considered the property of his master. The slave was not his own. He was owned by another person. He was the property of his master. And so in essence, you know what Paul begins his letter by by saying here, Timothy and I are owned by Christ Jesus. He is our master. And if you are not a Christian this morning, you know, hearing that, you might bristle a little bit, uh, maybe even be offended by that. You might be asking yourself, you know, why would anyone, why in the world would they want to identify themselves as a slave of Christ Jesus? We should be seeking after freedom and autonomy not slavery, but what we know from Scripture is that everyone, every single person that is born in this world is a slave in a spiritual sense. There are only two realities that the Bible uh, points to. Either you are a slave to sin or you are a slave to Christ. There is no other reality that anyone can live in outside of these two realities. The Lord Jesus, in John chapter 8, verse 34, he said to the Pharisees, to those who did not believe in him, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, what is Jesus explaining here in, in this verse? Well, he's explaining that We are born into sin. We are born into our natural will, then, is toward sin. Without Christ, sin is our master. And just as a a slave obeys his master, so all those who are slaves to sin, they can do nothing other than what their sinful desires urge them toward. They cannot resist sinning. But the Lord Jesus continues and says in two verses later, chapter eight, John chapter 8, verse 36, he says that if the Son, and this is S-O-N, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. See, the idea here is that by faith in Christ, we are set free from the bonds of sin. Sin is no longer our master. Christ now is our master, and now as our master, he sets us free. In what sense? 
He sets us free first from the penalty of sin. We are no longer under the condemnation of sin, the judgment of sin. We have been freed from the penalty of sin. And we have also, loved ones, been freed from the power of sin. Sin is no longer master over us. Sin no longer has dominion over us. It no longer reigns in our mortal bodies. And so some of you might say, you know, wait a minute, that, that doesn't seem to make a person free. It merely seems that you're trading one master for another master. It really doesn't seem like autonomy or what I might desire. It doesn't seem like an improvement. But the Bible teaches us that it is a dramatic improvement, loved ones. It's like going from death to life, from darkness to light. Because what we know from Scripture is that sin is a cruel master. Sin leads its captives toward further depravity. And we see this illustrated so well in the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son who left his father's home thinking, finally free from rules, finally free to do what I want. We see that he, after just a short period of time, after leaving his father's home, that freedom led him toward greater and greater depravity to the point where he was wallowing with the pigs. Sin is a cruel master. But when the Son sets us free, we are enabled to live in service to God. See, we are enabled to begin to live as we were originally created to live. We, you know, at this point, are not without sin, but we know that sin is no longer our master. Christ is our master, and now we are able to live to please him, to live as we were originally created. The Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one, asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the first sentence of that answer is, that I am not my own. I'm not my own, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. What the Catechism is getting at here is that Christ, through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, he has broken sin's dominion over us. By faith in Christ, we are no longer under the complete power of sin. In Adam, born into Adam's sin, our minds were darkened, our, our souls were corrupt, we were depraved. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, the mind under sin's dominion is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. But now in Christ, see, we are the new man. We are the new woman. We have received the mind of Christ, says Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. We can now do what pleases God. We have that freedom. So as Christians do, do we still sin? Yes, we do. But now in Christ, 
our attitude towards sin is completely different. See, sin now in Christ is uncomfortable. It's alien to us. It's no longer our master, and we know it. John Owen writes that as Christians in Christ, sin is a burden that afflicts us rather than a pleasure that delights us. See, we used to, before Christ, before we were in Christ, we used to delight in sin, but now we delight in the things of God. We delight in being with the people of God, in the house of God, doing the things that please the Lord. This is what brings us delight. This is a sure sign of our being taken out of the dominion of sin and being brought into the dominion of Christ, into his kingdom. And so we are servants of Christ Jesus, but we see secondly that we are also saints in Christ Jesus. We are saints in him. As Paul says in the letter at the beginning, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now notice that Paul uh, refers to those in the church in Philippi as saints. I want to ask you this morning, what do you think about or what comes to mind when you hear that word saints? You know, some people think of uh, super Christians, of Christians who uh, lived such good and such holy lives and perhaps accomplished some great things. And so these super Christians in their minds are, are considered saints. Um, and other think, others think that uh, saints are only a really good Christians, not necessarily just super Christians, but really good Christians. We might say things like, oh, that person is a saint, or she's a saint, right? Because we admire something about their uh, Christian attitude. But notice that, that Paul addresses all believers in Philippi as saints. Not just the super Christians, and not just the really good Christians, but all of the believers in the church. And so what is he referring to? You know that word saint in our English Bibles it describes a person who is holy and who has been set apart for God. It literally means holy ones. Now in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament we know that things were declared holy, certain objects. Objects like the items in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Things like the golden lampstand and the various altars. God had to set them apart for a holy use, and so they were not to be treated as, as common objects. So we see in the Old Testament certain objects were set apart or considered as holy. But in the Old Testament, people were also considered holy. God spoke to Moses in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6. He spoke to Moses saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. We see that God called his people holy as he brought them out from the dominion of Pharaoh, who was a type of, of sin, right? who was, a, in a sense, a type of the Antichrist, brought, him out from, brought them out from that dominion and declared them holy, declared them his people. And so the good news of the gospel is that in Christ Jesus, in union with Christ, you and I, loved ones, have been made holy. We are declared holy ones. We have been sanctified. But this, again, does not mean that we're sinless, but it means that we have been definitively set apart for God in Christ Jesus and that we have been enabled by the Spirit to more and more die to sin. Again, we're not under sin's dominion any longer. To die to sin and to live to righteousness. See, saints, saints are not perfect Christians, but they are united. We are united to a perfect Savior. And that is what makes us holy. You know, it's amazing to think that Paul referred to all those in the church in Philippi as saints, because as we'll see, we go through the letter, uh, it was not a perfect church. They had their share of problems, like every church, right? In fact, one of the main themes of the letter is unity. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, exhorting Christians in the church to get along, to find unity in the gospel and unity amongst one another. It was not a perfect church church, Uh, specifically in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul actually calls out two women in the church who are causing division. He says there in chapter 4, verse 2, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Two women refers to them by name. Now, you have to picture this, because in the ancient world, when They received a letter from Paul or from Peter or one of the apostles. What the church would do is somebody would stand up and they would have the letter before them and that person would read the letter out loud. We got a letter from Paul. Let's all gather around and listen to what Paul has written to us. And you can imagine as the letter was being read, all of a sudden, Yodia and Syntyche are, you know, singled out. And Paul says, I entreat these two to get along. That must have been an awkward conversation after worship. I definitely think so. And even more amazingly, you know, Paul uses the same title of saints when he writes to the church in Corinth. And we know that that church was also far from perfect. It was a church that was struggling with divisions among the rich and the poor, with false teaching, with members affected by sexual sin, and and Paul writes and he calls them saints. Why? Because loved ones are holiness, see, 
our, our status as holy ones before God is not a result of our works, but it's because of Christ's work for us and the Holy Spirit's indwelling of us. So notice that Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 that we are saints in Christ Jesus. It is by our union with Christ and his accomplished work on our behalf that we are set apart and we now begin to grow in sanctification. So this is the basis for all of the exhortations that we will see throughout this letter. Exhortations to live holy lives. Why? Because we have been made holy in Christ. It's the same pattern that we see throughout Scripture. It's the same pattern, in fact, that we see even in the Old Testament. We read from Exodus chapter 19, where uh, the Lord referred to his people, to the nation of Israel, as holy people, as a holy nation. He did that specifically in Exodus 19, but then in Exodus 20, he gave them his law. He said, you are holy, now live according to my statutes. So we are servants of Christ Jesus. We are saints in Christ Jesus. And lastly here we see that we receive grace and peace through Christ Jesus. Verse 2, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we look at this verse, you know, it's significant that Paul names both God the Father and God the Son. He names them both and he shows that they are united together in blessing the believer with peace, with grace, and with peace. This is important because some people throughout church history, and this still happens today, they falsely pit God the Father and God the Son against each other. As though, you know, God the Father is the one that we find in the Old Testament, and he's mean and he's angry and he seems kind of judgmental. But then there's the God of the New Testament, Jesus, and he seems kind and merciful. And so they pit these two against one another. This is completely false. We know from Scripture that it's false. One example is that in the book of Revelation, it's not the Father who will come in judgment. It's the Son who will come in judgment. And also, we know that rather than working against each other, all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, they are united together in accomplishing our salvation and accomplishing our redemption. Older uh, Reformed theologians, when they spoke about this covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they referred to it as the Council of Peace, referring to this agreement or covenant between the persons of the Godhead in which God the Father gave a people to his Son. And the Son agreed to, in time, fulfill and accomplish all the salvation of of the elect. 
And then the Spirit being sent by the Father and the Son would bear witness to the salvation of the Son. And so we receive grace and peace through Christ because we see that he, before time began, he agreed to bear God's wrath for our sin. And we know from the gospel that in the fullness of time, he came and he fulfilled that covenant, granting us grace and peace and securing it eternally with God. And you know, we have elements before us this morning that are sure reminders of this grace and peace that we have received. They are signs that point to the wrath that Christ endured for us and the peace that he secured for us. The bread that is before us is a reminder that his body was broken. And the wine that is before us is a reminder that his blood was shed. And it's actually centuries before Christ. Isaiah wrote in chapter 53, verse 5, and R.C. Sproul used to say that Isaiah 53 is almost like an eyewitness account of the crucifixion, even though Isaiah was writing centuries before uh, that night. Isaiah writes, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And it's with his stripes that we are healed. So loved ones, it's why you and I are now called to this table. We are invited by the Lord to this table, to this heavenly feast that is before us. Because in Christ, we have been set free from the penalty and power of sin. We have been set apart for him. And we are being sanctified in him by the Spirit. And we have received grace and peace. Amen. Let us pray. Merciful Father, you have been pleased to condescend to us and to speak to us through your word. So we ask you to give us grace to believe what has been proclaimed to us. May we bring glory and honor to your name in all that we do as you conform us to the image of your Son, in whose name we pray.